may be seated. The last two weeks, as we've been traversing through the Psalms, we've looked at two different Psalms of lament. First, uh, an individual lament is composed by Psalm 42 and 43 together. And then last week, a community lament in Psalm 44. This week, we're going to do something a little different after spending these times in psalms of lament, we turn our attention to a psalm of thanksgiving and praise, something more uplifting, more joyful. We turn to Psalm 47. Before we do that, though, let's take a moment to ask the Lord's blessing upon our time together. Heavenly Father, we we prepare now to open your word to, to hear your voice. We pray that indeed we would do that, that you would speak to us through your living and active word by the power of your spirit, speaking deep into our hearts, deep into the the deepest parts of our souls, into our innermost being, that we would be, be penetrated by your word in such a way that we would be transformed, that we would be made new. We pray that you would tear away whatever there is in our hearts or in our minds that would obstruct us from knowing your truth, that would keep us from hearing your voice, that you would do a mighty work this morning. Not because we deserve it, not because we are so spiritual, not because we in any way have come to a place where where we have earned your blessing. But do a mighty work, we pray, because of your mercy, because of your grace. And in the midst of our weakness, we pray that you would be strong. We ask it in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. Amen. Follow along now as I read from Psalm 47. This is the inspired word of God. Clap. Your hands, all peoples, shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us, the nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This is a very special time of year that is coming up for many of us. It's a time we know as college football season. Okay, maybe it's not that special, but 
But people get excited about college football, don't they? People get very excited. Every Saturday, 80 or 90 or even 100,000 people will gather together in either East Lansing or Ann Arbor, and they will, they will sing songs, and the exploits of their heroes will be regaled and cheered, loudly and passionately applauded. And even if many of us are, are not at the games with those giant throngs of fans, we'll be sitting in front of our televisions, and with, with every touchdown scored, we will yell out in joy, perhaps even clapping our hands, yes, in exultation. If we're football fans, we, we love our teams, whatever team that might be. And because we love them, we're emotionally involved. We're invested in them with our heart. And that plays out in the way that we act. And it makes it all the more curious that many of us who have clapped our hands until they are sore and screamed with our voices until they are hoarse, every Saturday will the next day head to church. We come here to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who we love because he first loved us. We will come to worship him, and yet we will often act like we're simply going through the motions. We will have all the emotional involvement of a statue. You know, I, I think that this psalm today offers a very important corrective to that mindset, to that heart set, to that, that body set, <laughs> even. It, it speaks to us about how God desires for his people to worship him. Starts right there in verse 1. Hard to hide verse 1, isn't it? Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Clap your hands. Shout to God. Loud songs of joy. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. Most Sundays, that's not exactly how we look, is it? Now, I'm not saying that necessarily uh, that these are are literal prescriptions of exactly how our worship should look. I'm not saying that it's not either. I'm just saying let's set that aside for a second. What we can say for sure is this. I think, I think we can say this with great assuredness, that if we look at the idea that stands behind these words, at, at the heart of God as he prescribes the kind of worship he wants, we can tell that for sure he wants a worship that, that involves our hearts. Our hearts should be involved in our worship. And our actions in worship should flow out of our hearts as an expression of where our hearts are. You know, there, there are times that Presbyterians are referred to as the, the frozen chosen, right? I can even see a few of you mouthing that as I said it. You knew where I was going. And we chuckle, the frozen chosen. 
That's kind of funny. And it is. I don't think God chuckles. I think quite possibly God weeps at the fact that we are known as the frozen chosen. I don't think he wants worshipers who are frozen. Worshippers who are like statues. Worshippers who, who are stone-faced, who are completely emotionless, who, who sit through an hour of worship as if they're sitting through a lecture on the tax code. I, I'm guessing he, and it's not a guess, I'm, I'm stating this on the basis of his word right here. He wants people who are emotionally invested in their worship. Who, who are excited about their worship. Now, that might look a little bit different for each one of us. I'm not saying it has to look the exact same for each of us, but it does mean that our hearts should be engaged. And not just in the singing, either. You know, I think that that's, that's a, a really sad trend that I've seen in, in kind of the language of the church in recent years, uh, recent decades even, really. Uh, a, a lot of churches speak of Worship in, in terms of, of like their worship service might not be quite as liturgically uh, involved as ours is. And, and they'll have basically two parts. There'll be the part at the first of the service where there's some singing. And then, and then there'll be a sermon and maybe a song at the end. But, but the language is such that, that you'll hear it said, what's that singing time called? It's called the worship time. You know, we have the worship time and then we have the preaching time. And, and the suggestion is there that, that it's only in the singing of songs that we are worshiping God. But, but I dare say that, that worship that is truly pleasing to God has, has far more parts than just singing, right? When we confess our sins together, we are worshiping God. When we, when we communicate with God through prayer together, we are worshiping God. When we exalt God through the reading and the, the listening to of his word, we are worshiping God. When we sit under the preaching of his word, when we submit to the instruction of his word, we are worshiping God. These are all facets of the worship of God, and they should all be done not only with our minds, but with our hearts. They should be done with a heart engagement that brings honor and glory to God. That all said, certainly music is also a part of that worship. It's, it's very clear that God desires that. We look at verse 6, for instance, where he says, Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. Four times in one verse. Sing praises. This is something that we ought to be doing. Singing praises. You know, it's... it's not the only times in, in this psalm that, that singing praises is mentioned, but, but it is instructive that, that it is repeated four times right after each other. One, two, three, four. If we are going to write something down and we want to emphasize it, we might boldface it, right? Or we might underline it. Or, or if it's really important, we might double underline it, right? Because we want to express this is really important. But, but in poetry, especially in Hebrew poetry, one of the primary ways that something was reinforced, something was, was shown to be very important, that there was, was an emphasis to be placed on it, was through repetition. And what we see here is not just a repetition, but kind of a double-double, a right? He, two times he says the same thing twice. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. 
There's already a repetition there, but then he doubles up on that. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. This is vitally important. God wants us to sing praises to him. If we want to worship God, we need to know that he wants us to sing praises. Now you might be saying, but Pete, wait a second. You've never heard my singing voice. <laughs> my singing voice is terrible. And, and, and I just can't sing out loud. It, it would be terrible. To which I just want to ask you one question. Who, who do you think it was that gave you that singing voice? Was it not the same God who decrees you are to sing praises to your God? So you might have the best voice in the whole congregation, or you might have the worst voice in the entire world. God calls you to sing praises. Now, now this is awkward for some of us because we don't go around singing in most of our lives. This isn't, this isn't a, a, a Rodgers and Hammerstein show, right? It's, it's not the kind of thing we don't just go through life singing. But God calls us to do things we don't normally do. That's the whole idea. If he is the Lord of our lives, our, our lives are shaped in a different direction than they would be otherwise. We, we do things that we wouldn't normally do. And he even works through our weaknesses to proclaim his glory. That's the way he often works. So in the midst of our feeble works, he might be strong. Perhaps that is what he is calling you to do. If you don't feel comfortable singing, perhaps he is calling you to step out in faith, to trust in him, to use the voice that he has given you, to sing his praises so that he might be glorified through that. Not because your voice is incredible, but because he is incredible. He is glorious. He is wonderful. So wonderful that you, even though you don't have a great voice, want to sing to him. What a statement of his glory that is. Sing praises to our God. Sing praises to our King. You know, the Bible talks about offering a sacrifice of praise. For some of us, that might be singing a song. Singing a song when we're not comfortable singing a song. I want to commend you that even if, if, if that's not something that you would normally do, just consider if, if, if we're more concerned with how we sound than we are with how he is glorified, perhaps we've got our priorities off, off target, don't we? Shouldn't we be more driven by what he wants than what we want? If you're not comfortable singing, maybe, maybe you're, you just can't take that step. I, I just can't get there, Pete. I, I just can't do that. I want to encourage you to, at the very least, do this. As, as we sing hymns, have, have a hymnal open in front of you. Have, have your large print bulletin maybe in front of you. And, and at least be reading through the words, mouth the words maybe. You know, even if there's no voice coming out, mouth the words and and, and at least be engaged with the words of the hymn as we sing them together. And, and who knows, maybe the Spirit will move you and, and, and you don't even expect it. And all of a sudden, something might start coming out. Just, just be available to that. The Lord says, sing praises. Sing praises. After four times, 
of saying this in verse 6. We're instructed a, a fifth time in verse 7. This time it's modified a little bit, though. It says, sing praises with a psalm. Now, on the one hand, God definitely does want us to sing the psalms. That's why he's given them to us. That's one of the truths that we've tried to to unearth in this study of the psalms this this summer. And it's one of the things that going forward, it, it is a hope of mine that we can more and more in increasing measure incorporate the singing of the psalms into our corporate worship. But that said... The word that's translated here as psalm, probably, probably that's not the best translation. It's a different word than we see used as psalms throughout uh, the book of Psalms in many places. It, it's actually the Hebrew word maskil. And, and you might recognize that word because it's something that we've seen uh, in the, the superscription at the beginning of a number of psalms recently. Psalm 42, Psalm 44, Psalm 45, all all are referred to as a masculine. And, and it comes from a word that, that's root means wisdom or, or, or skill sometimes. And, and, and I think what, what's trying to be said here when, when it says sing with the psalm, I think it's actually a better translation is, is what the King James Version translated as, as say, saying sing with understanding. The idea being not just that we ought to sing mindless praises, right? It's not just, not just making music to make music, not just mindless praises that, that, that come from maybe our, our own designs or just from our emotions. I just, I just feel this way and that's how I'll sing. But, but praise that is grounded in the bedrock truths of who God is and what God has done. That is where our, our praise should be grounded. And so having covered what we should do, sing praises to God, let's take a look at why we are to do it. It can be seen throughout the psalm. First of all, we we do this because he has owed our praises by virtue of his position. Verse 2, the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. He's to be feared, not like like in a scary movie or, or even some terribly dangerous, scary situation like in the midst of a war. It's not, it's not the Lord is to be scared of. The Lord is to be feared. The idea there is, is uh, one of awe and reverence and respect. I like how Richard Phillips puts it. He says it this way. He says this fear of God is, is to respect his sovereign word and to tremble at the thought of disobeying his commands. I like that. That kind of encapsulates what it means to Fear God is to orient our life towards his decrees, towards his designs, to have that kind of respect for him. Why should we have this? Well, verse 2 says that the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. He is a great king over all the earth. You see what he says there? He's king over all the earth. Not just king over those who submit to him. Not just king over those who are in the church. Not just king over those who live in nations that are mostly oriented toward God. No, he says king over all the earth. Everyone is under his authority as king. 
There is none who can escape it. Now the question you might have for me then, does, does that mean if God is king over all, does that mean that, that whatever God we worship, we're all in actuality worshiping the same God? It's just we have different thoughts about him or we call him different names. No, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying at all. We are worshiping the God who made promises to Abraham. He is the true and living God. We are worshiping the God who fulfilled promises through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins that we might be forgiven, who rose from the dead that we might have new life, who ascended on high and reigns at the right hand of God Almighty even now. And if we are not worshiping him, then we are worshiping a different God than the God who truly is. We need to know that. He is the one true and living God. There is no other. And he has owed our worship by virtue of his position as king over all the earth. He's also owed our worship because of his sovereignty. Verse 4, he chose our heritage for us. The pride of Jacob whom he loves. It's interesting here, isn't it? He says, he chose our heritage heritage. He doesn't say, we chose this path. We chose to be a part of this. We chose him. We chose to be a part of the people of God. We chose to be a part of his church. No, he chose. He chose our heritage. And thank God that this is the case. You see, the reality is, if I were in charge, I would have made a complete mess of it. If you were in charge, you would have made a complete mess of it. The reality is that that any of us left to our own would quickly and decisively and completely reject God and go our own way. But he is by his grace, for his purposes, according to his will, called us to follow him. And we give him glory for that because of his sovereign work of salvation in our lives. Why, Why did he choose us? Well, it speaks here of the pride of Jacob, the, the Old Testament nation of Israel. Why did he love them? It was not because they were large. It was not because they were powerful. It was not even because they would be faithful, because they were not. No, it was because God decided to do it that his glory might be made known. For his purposes, by his grace, for his glory. And it's the same way with us. We are called to be the people of God. He has chosen us. He has made us his people. Paul tells us in Titus 3, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. In short, We love him only because he first loved us. And so we worship him. So we sing praises to him. We do it because he is owed it by virtue of our relationship to him. Because what happens when when he calls us to himself, when he saves us as his own, he also adopts us as his children. We become heirs of the kingdom of God. We become his very children. We are loved in a peculiar way, in a special way. He loves his children, those who are called according to the name of Christ Jesus, in a way that he does not love others. 
Now, there is a sense in which there is a, a general love and a general call that goes out to all the world and to any who would trust in Christ Jesus, no matter where they come from, no matter what they've done, can turn to him today. They will be adopted. They will be brought in. But there is a special way that he loves those who are his children. It sounds terribly exclusive to make such a claim. And it is terribly exclusive. But wouldn't it be more exclusive or, or more terrible? We, we, might think it's, we might think it's mean, right? It, it's mean to say that, that God loves us more than he loves somebody else. But see, we're not saying that we're better. We are no better than any others. We're saying he loves us for his purposes. And, and it would actually be mean to, to not share that message with others because, because if it is the truth and we withheld that truth from them, that that would be the height of hate. For instance, let's say it's, it's a Michigan winter. It's cold. It's a cold Michigan winter. And, and you come across somebody, you find out that there's somebody who's, who's been outside in the sub-zero weather for days upon end. And the hypothermia is setting in. And they're going to die. And you say to them, come in. There is, there is warmth to be had in this house. Come, come in, because if you stay out there, you will die. But if you come in, you will have life. But you must come in. You must come in. You can't just stay out there and live, because you will die out there. Come in. You see, that? that's not, that's not hateful exclusivity, is it? You're, you're not hating that person by saying, by saying, you have to come in. No. You're inviting them in. It's the same way. We, we say that God loves us in a peculiar way as his children, not to set us apart from others, but so that we might invite them in, so we might invite them to share in the love that we have experienced, so we might have them come in and join us, so that we might have them join in the blessings of God that he offers to all who would turn to him. Come in and see the love of God. Know the love of God. For he offers it to all who would turn to him. It's interesting how we see the multiple uses of the names of God. We see in verse 2 here, for the Lord the Most High. And again in verse 5, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. And I love what Randy said earlier. He brought up this fact that when we see the word the Lord in all capital letters, that, that that's referring to the name of God. I am, Yahweh. Uh, it's, it's referring to the self-designation that God has given himself. Right? This is his name. It is his covenant name that he has given to his covenant people. There's a lot wrapped up in this name. All the things that Randy said before, it's all wrapped up in, in that name. Beyond that, the covenant promises of God, his, his adoption of his people, his steadfast love that goes out to all his people for all times, in all faithfulness, it is all wrapped up in this name, this covenant name. It is a very personal and intimate name. That's what we see in the Lord in verse 2, the Lord in verse 5. But that's not the only way he refers to him in, himself in, in the psalm, is it? He also refers to himself in verse 2, the Lord, the Most High. The Most High is a very generic name for God. It's, it's, it's the name that, that the nations would have used to refer to the, the, the God of gods. He's saying, I, I'm not just a tribal deity for a certain people. 
I am the God of nations. I am the God of peoples. I am the God of all the earth. In fact, those, those phrases turn up time and time again in this psalm. Three times we see the word the peoples, twice the nations, twice all the earth. This idea he is trying to make is I am the God of all things, not just for a small group. And it, people can come from anywhere and turn to me. See verses 7 and following, for God is the king of all the earth. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. The shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. It doesn't matter what you think of God. He is who he is. He is worthy of our worship. Because he is the sovereign creator of all. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He will one day set all things right. And that's one of the things in, in the song we sang right before the, the sermon. It's one of my favorite verses in, in, in any hymn, really. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. What a wonderful promise that is. What a wonderful reminder This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus, who died, shall be satisfied. And earth and heaven be one. What a wonderful, wonderful promise. We look around the world and we see pain and suffering and agony, death and tears and mourning. We experience these things and everything is just so broken. But it will not always be this way. It will not always be this way because one day Jesus will return to set all things to rights and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father and what a day it will be. You see, the the love that God had for, for Abraham's children was never meant to terminate solely upon them. It was meant ultimately to spread to the peoples of the world, to the nations of the world. And so even though in verse 3 we read, he subdued the peoples under us and the nations under our feet, as one commentator puts it, God's subduing of the Canaanites is not his final word for the Gentiles. And how wonderful that is, because the Gentiles, that's you and me. We were not just conquered by the people of God, but ultimately brought into the people of God. That the promises to Abraham that that all the families of the earth might be blessed through him would ultimately be be fulfilled. That, That the great commission of Jesus to his apostles might go out. That they might make disciples of all the nations. And that ultimately the prophecy of Revelation 5, 9, that around the throne of God might be worshipers whom he had ransomed from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation to the glory of God. What a wonderful promise that is. And so we see in verse 5, we'll end here, that God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of the trumpet. And some have suggested, and I think rightly so, at least in part, that this is referring to when, when David brought the ark into the temple in 2 Samuel 6. And the reason I I feel pretty confident saying that is because if we look at 2 Samuel 6.15, listen to the words here. 
It says, so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. You notice the elements here? The Lord went up with shouting and the horn, or the trumpet. It's the exact same words we see here, right? God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of the trumpet. So I think it's referring back to that in one sense. But it's not just referring back to that. There's more to it than just that. When you were in high school, maybe, perhaps you had to memorize the poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Paul Revere's Ride. If you didn't have to memorize it, perhaps you're at least familiar with it. It begins, listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. On the 18th of April in 75, hardly a man is still alive who remembers that famous day and year. It goes on to tell of the exploits of Paul Revere as he rode through town to town, crying, the British are coming, the British are coming to prepare the American colonists to fight the Revolutionary War. It is a poem that speaks of something that happened in the past. It's, it's a poem that, that tells us of the historical truth, something that happened. But, but this poem we read here today in Psalm 47, while being that, at least in this verse, in one sense, is far more than just that. One commentator put it this way, he says, more than historical poetry, this is a prophecy whose climax is exceptionally far-reaching. See, because it doesn't just look back to the Ark of the Covenant and David bringing it into Jerusalem. No, it also looks forward. It looks forward to a time when Christ Jesus will come again. Remember, Jesus on the road to Emmaus speaking to the disciples, and it said in Luke 24 that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This perhaps was one of those things. He might have said, remember back in Psalm 47, verse 5, where it talked about David and the ark, bringing the ark into Jerusalem. That also was talking about me. That also was talking about maybe yes it points back to David but it also points forward to a better day a greater day when the son of God the king of kings the king of all the earth enters into the new Jerusalem and sits upon his heavenly throne to reign forever and ever and ever and as Charles Spurgeon says faith hears the people already shouting and command of the first verse that command back in verse one clap your hands shout to god is here regarded as a fact the fight is over the conqueror ascends to his triumphant chariot and he rides up to the gates of the city which is made resplendent with joy at his return this is when all things are made right and we look forward to that day we look forward to that day and in faith we already hear the people singing. We hear the people cheering. And we add our voices to theirs. This is why we worship God. This is how we worship God. And this is why it is so sweet to trust in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you have not only told us what you've done in the past, 
but you tell us what you will do in the future. You give us this vision, this glimpse of this glory that will be shared by all who trust in you. We thank you for this gift. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us more and more to lay hold of it, to rejoice in it, and to sing praises to your holy name this day and forevermore, forever and ever and ever. May we sing and not grow weary. For we sing of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you rise with me now as we sing hymn number 581.